the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. Welcome back, Lindsay. And welcome back to you, Justin. Happy 2021. We needed a fresh start. We did need a fresh start. We needed to kind of compose ourselves, which is why we took a a little hiatus there, but we're back in action. Really bringing, I think, uh, a great movie to talk about for our first episode of, of 2021, and that's Silence of the Lambs. Damn near perfect movie, wouldn't you say? If not a perfect movie. Yeah, I, I feel this is one of those movies to me that feels perfect. I've been, I've watched this movie a lot of times uh, while because there was there's so much info on this movie. This is one where I, I really had to watch a lot and really didn't get old to me. I completely agree with you. All of the backstory, everything behind it, and multiple interviews, it never got tired. And just in researching this movie, I've probably watched it five times through on top of the... I can't even count how many times I've watched this movie um, over the last 30 years. Yeah, never get tired of this one bit. And this is, we are just um, about a month shy of this movie's 30th anniversary. Which is really wild to me because I just watched a recent interview with uh, Jodie Foster and she still doesn't look much older than she did in Sons of Lambs. <laughs> yeah, I've seen her make fun of the brown hair a little bit, yeah. but... um. But yeah, she looks exactly the same. So a lot. To, we've got a lot to cram into this episode. This I, I foresee this episode going a bit long. You know how this whole thing got off the ground, the creation of it, um, from book to screen. Of course, we'll get into our favorite topic of discussion, which is the cast. Of course, we'll talk about how this movie came to be, the pre-production, kind of the shaky legs that it started on. Of course, the story itself, why this movie is important just to cinema in general. Um, there's certainly a lot of themes, a lot of atmosphere, right? That's probably one of my favorite aspects of Silence of the Lambs. It's just the yeah. overall atmosphere of the movie. And we'll definitely talk about the, you know, a little bit of controversy surrounding the film when it came out uh, and surrounding one of the characters in the film. Uh, we'll talk about the franchise that this became, which is an unusual franchise to have uh, built around the character of, of Hannibal. There's even a t- television show. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's also some fun stylistic choices that were intentionally made for this movie that were kind of, you know, uncommon. So, yeah, so much to talk about with Silence of the Lambs. As always, we will get into our picks of the week after. Uh, it, this was a tough one for me to do a pick of the week because there was just so many options and directions to go in, but I landed on the Anthony Hopkins connection with the movie The Edge. Ooh, good choice. It's been a second since I've seen that one. I feel like I say that with all all of your picks, but this one um, I do remember is pretty... Uh, Heart pounding. I got to say, I hadn't seen it since it came out, and uh, I'll talk about it, but it was much more intense than I remembered. And I wanted to do a Jodie Foster movie, but tonally, for some reason, I just couldn't find one that fit with Silence of the Lambs that I I don't know. I just I felt like I wanted to stick with the, the spirit of the movie in some weird way. 
Um, there's plenty of movies I, I love with her in it, but I also went with a Anthony Hopkins movie from 1978 called Magic. I love that you picked Magic for your pick of the week. I'm so glad that I revisited it. It's kind of stuck with me in in a weird way. I even found myself listening to Anne Margaret, like a lot of Anne Margaret lately. Nice. She's in the movie. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But before we get into our first clip of Silence of Lambs, and I almost feel like I'm going to go for like an on-the-nose kind of clip for this one. But before we do that, <laughs> um, Lindsay, can you give us your interpretation of what this movie is about? Oh, you know I'd love to, Justin. In an effort to help save the life of a kidnapped woman and put an end to a serial killer's terror, Clarice Starling, an FBI trainee, is enlisted to gather information from Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, an infamous psychiatrist and sociopath. Hoping Lecter has some insight into the active killer's psyche, Starling must trade bits of her life for breadcrumbs of information, in turn, furthering her investigative skills, putting an end to these serial killings, and possibly quelling her own inner demons. I like that. It's very ominous. Yeah. There's a lot of darkness to this movie. We'll go to a clip, Sounds of Lambs, and then we'll be back. We'll talk about it. Quid pro quo, Doc. So tell me about Miss West Virginia. Was she a large girl? Yes. Big through the hips, Romy? They all were. What else? She had an object deliberately inserted into her throat. Now, that hasn't been made public yet. We don't know what it means. Was it a butterfly? Yes, a moth. Just like the one we found in Benjamin Raspail's head an hour ago. Why does he place them there, Doctor? The significance of the moth is change. Caterpillar into chrysalis. Our pupa, and from thence into beauty. Our belly wants to change too. There's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. Clever girl. You're so close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realize that? No. Tell me why. So like a lot of the movies that we've covered on this podcast, they've started not from an original screenplay, but from a book that was generally a big success and then somebody adapted that that work into a screenplay which then you know became a successful movie and that's completely understandable there's a lot of great books out there and a lot of times you're reading a book and you can visualize things you can see how this uh, could be a movie and for the most part we're going to be talking about the movie but we do want to give a little bit of backstory on how the movie started uh, from an original novel by Thomas Harris so pretty much Thomas Harris, his entire life has been Hannibal Lecter. And it's been said that all of the characters contained within all four of the novels about Hannibal Lecter or concerning him, um, all of those characters live within Harris. And, you know, whether that contributes to the type of person he is, not saying that he has these urges within the book, but all of these characters are very personal to him and mean a lot to him. He's also pretty well known to be a recluse. He doesn't really give interviews until just like within the last year, I think, but pretty much doesn't really talk about the work that he's done. And before the first book that he wrote um, concerning Hannibal Lecter, 
The first book before that was called Black Sunday, and then started the Hannibal Lecter series, the first being Red Dragon, which came out in 1981. And coming from a journalism background, Thomas Harris just decided to abandon kind of what he had known before, but he had taken all of those research skills and all of his uh, knowledge as far as trying to get to the bottom of every story and just dedicated those talents to becoming a novelist. So in 1981, uh, Red Dragon comes out, and then later that is adapted into the first of the the Lecter series, the Hannibal Lecter series, um, in the 1986 Michael Mann film Manhunter. And we'll talk about the, the sequels a little bit later on. But in 1988 is when Silence of the Lambs came out. And the book definitely started gaining traction as soon as it was released, but when it hit paperback, it became a bestseller and soon started making the rounds and catching the eye of people like Jodie Foster and Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman played a huge role in the first stages of, of getting uh, Silence of the Lambs uh, up and running. He uh, paired up with Orion Pitchers. Uh, Ryan Pitchers purchased the rights to Silence of the Lambs and were going to produce it with Gene Hackman uh, as a director. And also Gene Hackman was going to play the the Crawford role. I heard Hannibal Lecter or Crawford. Everybody has a little bit shady memory on this. Yeah, yeah. There's a few things in here where, yeah, between between various interviews, uh, I've heard different stories on, yeah. on how some of this came to be. So we're trying to keep it as concise as we can as far as the information that we found. So Gene Hackman um, started work with Orion. Uh, they did have to obtain the uh, the rights to the name Hannibal Lecter because during the Manhunter film that was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, he acquired the rights, uh, bought the rights to the name Hannibal Lecter, which is kind of a smart move. It's one of those, yeah. you know, things where people are like, no, I'm going to get the actual name rights to a character. <laughs> um, but Manhunter actually was like kind of a big bomb. So he really didn't give up much fight and he went ahead and gave them the rights to use the name Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs. Once uh, the movie got going, they needed to adapt it. So they hired Ted Talley to start adapting the book into a screenplay. He began work on that. And this is where there's some conflicting stories about Gene Hackman. But uh, once he got a preview of some of the script, he started feeling uh, some stories say that, you know, it was too violent for him. He didn't want to be associated with the movie. I've heard uh, other stories that it was his daughter that urged him not to work on a movie that was uh, this violent. Both accounts kind of seems strange to me because it wasn't like Gene Hackman hadn't been in any violent movies his entire career. Yeah, um, I had the same feeling. He read the novel and was excited about it. And I mean, I know that there's differences. It was a similar story about a yeah. serial killer <laughs> and a guy who, you know, who's imprisoned for eating people and killing them. But uh, anyway, Gene anything, Hackman. The book seems a little bit like more intense, I would imagine. Yeah, than yeah. So, uh, so I don't know. Maybe maybe that was just, uh, you know, that could have been Hollywood talk for he found something else that he wanted to do or who knows. Yeah. And that was just like some sort of some bum reason. But anyway, once Gene Hackman was out, that kind of put a damper on things because at the time, Gene Hackman was a really huge name and this was going to be his directorial debut. So Orion was trying to figure out, like, well, what are they going to do? People were starting to get excited about it. So they needed to figure out how are they going to rework the crew for this and get a new director? 
Another person who'd heard about this book, Silence of the Lambs, was Jodie Foster. And after she read it, she immediately thought, this is an amazing story. I want to do this. I want to be involved with this. I want to produce it. I want to get it figured out. So she starts investigating this and finds out that Orion already has it. Also finds out that Gene Hackman's involved and says, okay, cool. Will you consider me maybe for the lead role of Clarice? I'd, I'd like to be involved. Again, mixed stories here. Some stories that say that she is being considered for this and that she's on board with it. And then when Hackman dropped off as the director, they kind of dropped everything. So when that happened, there was kind of a pause that happened on the production. Orion told Ted Talley to keep writing the script, but they needed to find another director. Jodie Foster says, cool, you're still going to keep me on board, right? And Orion says, meh, we got to figure out a director first. And they do. And that turns out to be Jonathan Demme. Now they had worked with Jonathan Demme on numerous films before. And when Jodie Foster hears about this, she thinks, okay, there's no way Jonathan Demme's going to have me for this movie. Just considering movies that he's done before, she didn't really think that she had a shot for this. But that didn't exactly put a damper on her spirit for trying to continue to be involved with the movie. So she did contact Ted Talley, the screenwriter, and Ted. the way Ted Talley tells it is that he's in his office and gets a call. Jodie Foster's on the phone for you. He's never talked to her before, right? She starts, you know, saying why she would be perfect for this role. And he thinks, you know what? You're totally right. You would be. So Ted Talley's on board with Jodie Foster. He suggests her to Jonathan Demme. And Jonathan Demme's like, you know what? I already got Michelle Pfeiffer in mind. Let's see if she's on board with this. So Jodie Foster doesn't exactly take a backseat again. She flies to meet Jonathan Demme and says, I know you're interested in someone else, but would you at least keep me in mind for your second choice? And you've got to remember, too, Jodie Foster was just coming off of like a Oscar win for The Accused. So she was, uh, you know, this is like a serious contender for for a casting choice but i mean i understand michelle pfeiffer is a huge name and i i don't know why you wouldn't exactly jump for someone like jodie foster immediately um i guess it's just you know when he'd worked with michelle pfeiffer they had a working relationship um, but there were also other people that were said to be considered like laura dern and meg ryan which i could see michelle pfeiffer a little bit more but As it happened, Michelle Pfeiffer decided this was just too violent. She didn't want to be involved with it. Again, what's the deal with these people that were in super violent movies, like finding so much violence in sound slams? (laughs) I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer was in like Scarface where they like (laughs) sawed a dude in half with like a chainsaw. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Meanwhile, Jodie Foster's over here in the corner, just like raising her hand. She's yeah. like, "Hi, I know I'm five three, but I'm I'm really I'm I'm chock full of power over here." And that was, in essence, what won over Jonathan Demme was the way Jodie Foster came at him with the story and just said, "You know, I see this as Clarice Starling's story. This is about a woman saving another woman." And you know, I might be small, but I sure am mighty. And really, her presence, everything about her spoke to Jonathan Demi. And it was after that meeting that he was like, okay, I think we can do this. And once Jodie Foster won Jonathan Demi over, uh, things really started rolling for the cast. Uh, you know, they still needed to find Hannibal Lecter and 
uh, Jodie Foster was uh, in agreement with Jonathan Demme that they didn't want to get an American actor because so much of the language of Hannibal Lecter and, and the way he, he's cunning and conniving and manipulative with his with the way he speaks, they just thought like uh, traditional American actors wouldn't fit. And the kind of actors that were lined up to be Lecter were actors that you would expect at the time period, like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, but they wanted to go with like uh, a lesser known face. Even though Anthony Hopkins had been in a lot of movies, you know, big budget movies for like well over a decade. But uh, once they landed on him, they knew that they had found the right person. I think Jonathan Demme immediately, uh, everybody was just sort of like floored by what Anthony Hopkins, you know, decided to conjure up for his interpretation of, of the Hannibal Lecter character. It was funny hearing a few stories that, yeah, people didn't know what to expect exactly. I mean, everyone knew that Anthony Hopkins was a great actor, but you know, he wasn't like a massive marquee name or something like that. So the first day, yeah, on set of filming, when he when he brings out Hannibal Lecter, people were just like, okay, this is legit creepy. We got something really good on our hands right now. Yeah. And going back to Jodie Foster a bit, she was very, very adamant about this story because, like you said, this is a, a movie that not only has a strong female lead, but it is about a human being who's struggling with their identity in life of like who they are, you know, what their placement in their job is. They're in a male dominated field. They're also like pitted against basically like a supervillain. He's at the top of his game as far as like his intelligence and like where he is in life, you know, even though he's in prison, you know, all his knowledge and all his understanding of like the human psyche and she's working as a behavioral science trainee for the FBI. You know, of course, he's going to like toy with her a little bit, but it's so intimate and kind of like weirdly seductive in this movie. The back and forth between the Hannibal Lecter character and the Clarice Starling character. To me, that's what really draws you into this movie. I mean, I know that this movie is known to be scary and, you know, again, like everybody cites the violence in it. But to me, the majority of this movie is is them talking or it's Jodie Foster, Clary Starling, dealing with the male-dominated world of the FBI. And when they go to these sites where these murders have been committed, it's all male police officers. And she's constantly having to prove herself or, like, stand up for herself and, you know, not be treated differently just because she's a woman uh, walking into a situation. And a lot of times the way that Jonathan Demme I think approached the movie, which was appreciated by Jodie Foster, is that he did shoot the movie and intended it to be a movie from her perspective. And Jonathan Demme is no stranger to looking at films from the female perspective. And for a film about, one, a female cop is a rarity by itself, but a movie like this that gives the woman such depth, it's just like kind of unheard of especially when there's no real sexuality involved. Sure, there's some kind of like weird thing in the air between she and Hannibal Lecter, or is it like a weird father thing too? It's not really played upon a lot. This this is very much a story not about their relationship, but it is about 
Clarice and her experience of everything that's happening, whether that is Hannibal Lecter or that's the serial killer she's hunting down Buffalo Bill. But the main idea is Clarice's experience of the world around her. So that could be her looking at at a room full of men looking back at her and kind of judging her like, who are you? And or her stepping into I mean, one of it it makes me chuckle every time, like in the beginning credits when she steps into an elevator and all of these men like look three feet taller than her. Um, Obviously, she is a woman in a man's world. And I think especially for Silence of the Lambs, um, it's funny, like you can you can say the name of this movie and pretty much someone will quote something from Hannibal Lecter or say, oh, it's so creepy. That Hannibal Lecter really freaks me out. And it's not that he's not terrifying. He totally is. But it's forgotten. This is Clarice Starling's story. Hannibal Lecter and she share four scenes together. And he, as far as the story goes, is a supportive character, even though the impact that he has is is very heavy in the film. This is very much a story of her journey in becoming in going from FBI trainee getting thrown into this situation and graduating. You know, I feel silly saying this, but you know, all the times I'd watch this movie when I was younger, I never really got that how much it was shot from that perspective and then watching it older thinking like oh my gosh this is like not the movie I thought it was <laughs> um, really and, and especially even I remember when I was younger thinking why did they let her in to see Hannibal Lecter and not even catching you know and it's I think it is watching it from a male perspective of like when she needs to get in to see Hannibal to try to one last plea to get him information when they're holding him in that other cell after he travels Thunderdome cage. Yeah, and and you know it's the it's the only other time she sees another person of authority who's a female, and mm-hmm. the woman kind of gives her a look, you know, and it's almost like a look of, like yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I I totally get if you were a man, they would have just like let you in because you have a badge, and yeah. <laughs> it was it it took me many years to kind of like see this movie differently, which is really one of the reasons kind of kind of why I wanted to do it because it is a uh, interesting to me how much this movie is a, a female driven movie and is such from a female perspective any female listener is is like yeah idiot you know it's always <laughs> been that movie to me but i'm speaking i'm speaking to our male listeners right now it is something though that you you could miss and it's something very basic and it's only if you've experienced the world like that i don't necessarily think you have to be a woman to get it i think you can be in any situation where you have felt like the odd man out or felt like the vulnerable person and in a lot of ways silence of the lambs is your pretty basic you know, detective story. Sure, it's got these horror elements, but it's a psychological thriller, a police procedural movie. And and these stories have been told for years, but they've always been told from the male perspective. And you make the main character a woman, and it's like the genre just completely changes by doing that. This is, in a lot of ways, such a simple, traditional hero story. You know, you've got a, a vulnerable person who's just pretty green and 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 what they're getting to know, but very strong and very capable, even if they are a little shaky. But they're faced with this 
ultimate evil and have to destroy the monster to, let's say, save the princess at, you know, the top of the tower, or in this case, the bottom of the well. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of things where this story, you look at it and you break it down, it's, we know the story. We've heard the story a million times, but it's always been a man. When I also, too, love the the way that the story unfolds is it's intimate in the sense that, like, you know, we have the Clarice Starling, Hannibal Lecter interviews, you know, and that's a big portion, feels like a bigger portion of the movie than it is, but it's it's framed very, you know, close-ups and very claustrophobic and, like, you feel like you're, like, right there with them but then other parts of the movie they're not over stylized filmed almost procedural the movie kind of has like a grittier bland look to it there are some like very beautiful shots but Demi purposely wanted a lot of the movie to look a little bit colder and a little bit grittier and, and you know and he came from that background you know he he started making very low budget movies and to focus more on the story and the relationship and not have it be style over substance what made this movie feel much more classier and a little more prestigious but then when horror elements did come in to it I think that's why it catches you off guard because it, they're not setting this up as a traditional horror even uh, you know as, as far as the music go, goes there's no real indication that you're about to go to like the darkest depths of some sick human. When the movie starts, it kind of creeps in on you. I think all that is like very deliberate, you know, and Jonathan Demme and Ted Talley worked really well in the way of like saying, we still want to scare the shit out of you, but Mm -hmm. we don't want to, we don't want to show you our whole hand in the beginning and just open with some like (laughs) scary music and like show something real nasty happen in the first minute of the movie. So you know what you're in for this one kind of, it, 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 you have to settle in first and then it kind of just grabs you by the throat. <laughs> I think that there are a few times in the movie where we see miniature versions of how the whole movie unfolds. For instance, let's just say the opening credits of where Clarice is running through the woods, like training. And it's, I mean, it's not like a Rocky training thing, but she's like going through an obstacle course and the very atmospheric operatic music that's happening. That's really haunting and emotional that's happening. You, you feel like you're already going on this journey with her. That's, that's, that's something that's not quite right, but she's, she's headed for something big or to watching the progression of each scene that Clarice and Hannibal have together, like talk Fujimoto and Jonathan Demi, like strategically set up these scenes with them to be, the first one, the first encounter with each other, you know, it's very straightforward. It's very interviewing. And there are a few close-ups that get us into this this stylized intimacy that we're headed for. Um, but with each meeting, it becomes a little bit more, a little bit more. And like the second one, it's very shadowy and dark. And their their relationship is is growing, and when I say relationship, I don't mean romantic relationship. I just mean they're interacting with each other. And by the third time, this is when Hannibal's already kind of gotten into Clarice's brain. We're into some real in-depth close-ups. Like, not just close-ups, but like close-ups so far that the lighting behind the actor doesn't even matter. Yeah. Um, I think to make such a bold style choice 
like that and also having the actors not just Hannibal and Clarice but with so many things like with Crawford or even between Clarice and uh, her best friend Ardelia who's also a uh, FBI trainee played by Casey Lemons there's so many of these direct-to-camera intimacy moments of like we're having a conversation but by looking directly into the camera you become those characters you become the person having that conversation and it just enhances the story so much but it's such a bold style choice when there's also too um i like the way they sort of section this movie out because as an audience you know you're taken to her first big assignment which is like kind of thrilling and nerve-wracking and then you're also taken the audience is taken to her first time seeing a body where they're investigating it and it's like, you know, if they brought the body in and when they find, when they pull the, the larva out of the dead woman's mouth. But then you have multiple scenes where um, it's Jodie Foster by herself trying to figure stuff out. She's going to investigate things on her own. And I love how those are much more lighter moments. And then also like just in juxtaposition with, you know, we start, they start incorporating the Buffalo Bill character. And then, you know, we're seeing what he does. The story starts like breaking apart a little bit. And then we're like seeing sections of like different people's lives. That's a tough thing to do in the movie. Cause you know, you, you do that too much and then you kind of lose focus from one particular character. And this movie, if you, it's really seamless the way it's done. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to where you feel like you're with Jodie Foster the whole time, even though, uh, she's really not by herself in that much of the movie. And then also, too, when the senator comes to meet Hannibal Lecter, there's all these connecting factors that happen. A lot, I mean, a lot of story stuff going on. There's a lot of subplots happening, but it doesn't ever get confusing. It's always clear, and but you also always feel like you're right there with Jodie Foster, even though there's several moments in the movie where she's, you know, out of the picture. And of course, there have been a ton of movies police procedural movies where we're following the investigator. But for some reason, Silence of the Lambs feels like a much easier movie to follow. And it has to be due to the original source material from Thomas Harris that he's a journalist. He's very detail-oriented. He went and talked with FBI investigators back when Red Dragon came out and developed a relationship with them. Um, John Douglas uh, was one person at the time, and John Douglas actually came back to help the Silence of the Lambs crew, too, um, as well as an agent named Marianne Krauss, who was kind of the, not model necessary for Clarice Starling, but was the agent that Jodie Foster followed for a, a few days and told her about her experience as a female in the FBI world. And at the time, there weren't a lot of female FBI agents. So in one way, this movie coming out was not only helping the production crew of Silence of the Lambs by being able to film at the FBI training headquarters in Quantico and have Scott Glenn and Jodie Foster actually shadow FBI agents and learn procedures and film on location. All of this helped the production crew of Silence of the Lambs, but also this movie coming out was a positive depiction of a woman in the FBI world and also kind of doubled for a recruitment video. And in some ways, they kind of hoped that putting out this movie would get more women interested in joining the FBI since their numbers were like non-existent at the time. 
speaking to John Douglas, like he uh, not only helped on both of those movies, but uh, if you're a fan of true crime, the show, unfortunately, that just got canceled, Mindhunters, uh, that television show is basically based on the John Douglas, the real life John Douglas and the formation of the behavioral science crew at the FBI. It's kind of wild because like, you know, the last 20 years, true crime and, and crime television has, has been so huge, you know, like there's like four different CSIs now that have been on for like 10 or 15 years. Um, but really, the Sounds of Lambs, the 30 year anniversary, and it's easy to forget that crime procedure type movies, movies about the FBI, weren't really that big of a thing. I mean, sure, there was movies about serial killers, but even that really wasn't like a big Hollywood type production. But really, like after Sounds of Lambs and Seven, the next 20 years, you know, have given us like so much true crime and and now it's uh, you know s- such a big part of like pop culture and our fascination and our society which is really strange to me in some ways uh i love it too but i find uh when you start hearing the real stuff the behind the scenes of this movie like one of the documentaries on like what some of these guys uh the real serial killers once you get down to like the nitty gritty stuff you're like yeah this is terrible it's awful thankfully you know movies like silence of the lambs are created in a tasteful way. And I uh, really give kudos to the filmmakers and the, and the cast and the crew for taking subject material that is real and that is, uh, you know, based off of true events and horrible things that, that humans can do, but then finding a way to make it an entertaining movie and doesn't feel exploitive and also is uh, gives a great understanding of of what uh, these FBI profilers have to go through and some of the stuff that they have to experience. Um, I think it was even actor Scott Glenn who played Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs. He studied with John Douglas and said, oh, I'm a part of your world now. I feel like I'm a part of the FBI. And he's like, no, you're not. You know, And he played him some tapes of some of the, one of the... It was, it was of like two guys that had some a woman or women hostage and they were like tormenting her or something like that yeah and he he you know and he was playing an audio they they audio taped it and scott glenn was like yeah i I gotta stop and he he said it still haunts him like he still thinks about that and he said that uh he was uh against the death penalty before he you know signed up for silence of lambs and after he spent four days with the fbi he was like no we need you know he he said he changed his mind and was like for capital punishment and he was like some people can't be helped saw some behind the scenes stuff that he said you know some people should never experience because you won't ever be able to erase it from your mind which is pretty freaky and intense yeah that certainly is a one hell of a 180 to do on your on your belief system with silence of the lambs just one thing and then we'll we'll go to the next clip here one thing with Silence of the Lambs is that it, even though it is telling a story that is horrific and, and awful in so many ways, um, and it might seem bizarre to, uh, I think John Douglas said this, it might seem bizarre to uh, just, you know, the general public, but this is something that is very real to people in the law enforcement world. And if not for anything else, I think what Silence of the Lambs does very well is that it honors the victims of of crimes that are like depicted in this movie and it um is empowering uh to women in a lot of ways but it really just um it's very respectful and i think tries to be as 
honest in a portrayal and and telling a story um, that that isn't exactly and sadly um, isn't far fetched, you know, and that that's kind of awful to think about. But it's also some people's everyday reality, what they deal with when they go to work. And um, I think when you do a movie like this and you're able to honor the victims of, of crimes like this and honor the people that try to solve crimes like this and not make it exploitive, that's one hell of a feat, if you ask me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's stop there. We'll go to another clip. When we come back, we'll talk about the cast. We'll talk about the controversy and we'll talk about the reception and the uh, other extended movies in the Hannibal Lecter universe. After your father's murder, you were orphaned. You were 10 years old. You went to live with cousins on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana. And? And one morning, I just ran away. Not just, Clarice. What set you off? You started at what time? Early, still dark. Then something woke you, didn't it? Was it a dream? What was it? I heard a strange noise. What was it? It was... screaming. Some kind of screaming, like a child's voice. What did you do? I went downstairs, outside. I crept up into the barn. I was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. They were slaughtering the spring lambs. And they were screaming. And you ran away? No. First I tried to free them. I I opened the gate to their pen, but they wouldn't run. They just stood there. Confused. They wouldn't run. But you could and you did, didn't you? Yes. I took one lamb and I ran away as fast as I could. Where were you going, Clarice? I don't know. I didn't have any food, any water, and it was very cold. Very cold. I thought... I thought if I could save just one, but... He was so heavy. So heavy. I didn't get more than a few miles. The sheriff's car picked me up. Rancher was so angry, he sent me to live at the Lutheran Orphanage in Postman. I never saw the ranch again. What became of your lamb, Clarice? They killed him. You still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear the screaming of the lamb. Do you think if you save poor Catherine, you could make them stop, don't you? You think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs? I don't know. I don't know. Thank you, Clarice. And as we said in the beginning, I mean, Jodie Foster really, really rallied to get this role. And... Rightly so. I mean, it's such a great 
character it's such a strong role i think i'll always remember jodie foster as clary starling i love jodie foster she's done so many amazing movies and so many roles but this just seems to be the benchmark of really getting into the skin of a character and like having that come across on screen and just always having like extreme energy with ever whoever she's acting across from Man, you had to say getting into the skin of a character when talking about Silence of the Lambs. Nice one, Justin. Yeah, Jodie Foster just embodies this role, bringing strength and vulnerability to a character that just, I mean, just by looking at her, someone of a, a smaller stature carrying an entire movie that is this massive is impressive. And it's not exactly surprising. Jodie Foster's been around forever. But the fact that she can carry a movie like this that is about, you know, like it, it is her journey and something that is so psychologically deep, whether it's going into her character or just the overall feeling of the movie and everything that's happening, Jodie Foster is incredible. And it is such an iconic role forever and ever. I mean, so so many other characters have been based off of Clarice Starling just because of how uh, how moving her portrayal was. You know, in a lot of movies, uh, uh, like an uh, Oscar-worthy performance is usually involves an actor like doing a lot of shouting or like getting angry. And to me, Jodie Foster's, the way she portrays this character is very much the opposite. I mean, she's very, very quiet and very, very timid, but that's what sucks me in and like uh, kind of lures me into the story. And she does that great job of someone who's there trying to look relaxed, but they're tense. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that's very, you know, it's a subtle thing, but her character does have this sort of like intensity, this nervousness, but also like looks like they're trying to keep that under wraps because they're constantly faced with these like sort of atrocious uh, crimes that they're having to, uh, you know, information that they're having to digest. And it's a facet of her personality that draws in Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, because I think we see it best when they meet initially and he is really trying to, to put her in her place and to weed her out because he doesn't necessarily have any reason to respect her, especially right off the bat when he says, I was sent a trainee, an FBI trainee, like, how dare you? When she tries to combat him and has this sense of, she tries to look assured, but you know that you can see that she's, it's kind of a false front a little bit, but she's still doing it. It shows how brave she is. And that's a very complex thing that Jodie Foster's doing with that character and ultimately is is one of the reasons that Hannibal Lecter knows that th- this isn't a, this isn't somebody to be trifled with, that she's not afraid of him. Like you said before, the the vulnerability of her character, we essentially have this heroic role of someone who does save the day at the end. It's not your typical confidence-laden hero that, you know, we've seen in so many action movies or or adventure films. It makes, again, the movie so much more intimate and genuine because it's more easy to identify with someone who is a little bit more timid, I think, and and not 100% assured of themselves than when you watch a movie about the best doctor, the best, (laughs) you know, salesman. You know, it's, it's refreshing to see that in this movie. Yeah, you really do back her. And with a character that's like Clarice, she's someone that the audience can grasp onto, which is completely different than Hannibal Lecter. 
really the the pairing between the two, uh, her and Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins only being in what you said, four scenes in this movie, such a short amount of screen time, but he just leaves such like a lasting impression with this Hannibal Lecter character, almost so that he, in pop culture, I think like kind of overshadowed the movie because his performance is kind of what sticks in the mind because it is, uh, you know, on a lot, you know, on a very short list of like best villains or best or anti-villain or what do you want to call it? You know, the, the villain that you, that you hate, but you also love his cunningness and his charm. One brilliant thing about how he plays Hannibal Lecter is how still and in control he is and it's this stealthiness almost that makes you not really ever question his intelligence or anything about him which makes him terrifying which makes him someone that i mean just you just have this sheet of plexiglass separating you if you're clarice from this person who has the ability to i don't know kill the guy in the next cell by him by just talking to him this is a character that you don't mess with. And the way that Anthony Hopkins, his little stylistic choices, I mean, choosing not to blink, that was a decision on Anthony Hopkins' part. Or when he did blink, it was very controlled. Everything is very controlled about this character. And opting to play him in a way that maybe you don't expect. Like, do you expect necessarily the first time that we see Clarice walking up to meet him, him being right there in the middle of his cell waiting for her. That's extremely off-putting and immediately scary <laughs> as soon as as soon as we're introduced to him. And I, I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to bag on a movie to compliment another movie, <laughs> but there was another movie that came out maybe 10 years after Silence of the Lambs, uh, Ghost of Mars. I love John Carpenter, but there is a particular thing about Ghost of Mars where they kind of build up this this killer like he's the the most dangerous person on the planet. You're talking about Ice Cube, right? Talking about Ice Cube. And, you know, they they build up this sort of lineage of, like, crimes and how crazy of a character he is. And then when it's <laughs> revealed, you know, he's really not that terrifying. Sound Salams does that. The audience, you know, I mean, your expectations are, like, so high. And who's this person that they just said bit this nurse's, like, face off? <laughs> uh, and... Anthony Hopkins actually delivers on that, which I think is extremely hard to do. And a lot of movies do that. You know, they set up almost like they make a character. They they have so little time, so they're they're they almost make like this like legendary character and and set up all this backstory around them very quickly. And then that character usually doesn't fill the shoes of of our expectations. But Anthony Hopkins actually his his version of Hannibal Lecter and and knowing that this was a character that already existed in another movie made it his own. Such an unforgettable role. I mean, it's kind of crazy how 30 years later, he'll always be remembered as Hannibal Lecter. You know, they'll always play the scene of him, you know, saying he ate someone's liver. That'll be the the number one <laughs> clip that, that, that'll always be used for Anthony Hopkins. You know, speaking of that, the that thing that he does, that was an ad lib. If we can believe that. I love it. Like, what a sick, twisted ad lib. And also shows how in tune with that character that he was. I can't really think of a lot of movies where two lead roles have characters that are so unforgettable and so in tune with them. Like, it's hard to separate them from the actor just because it is so convincing. And he also has this particular way to... His eyes seem very... In the beginning, 
<laughs> you know, he's staring, he's not blinking, but you're kind of drawn in, you're you're listening to every word he says. But when he's talking to Clarice, there seems to be like a slight twinkle in his eye where you can tell that he's they're becoming friends, you know, that he has built some sort of respect for her, that he has uh, some sort of attraction to her. But then later in the movie when he's got the cop tied up, you know, he could he could walk away, but instead he you know, he lifts up the nightstick and he has like almost like shark eyes and just like just beats this cop to death. And there's like no remorse. There's like no mercy in his eyes. He can just really turn it on, like go from this very sly and smart, cunning character, charming character to like, just like this bloodlust killer. And man, that's, it's very, very, very terrifying role. And I like that we only see him in in some ways lose control during that scene you're talking about only that one time, really. And even when it is somewhat of a loss of control, it's not even that it's it's a release. I was watching it earlier today and seeing Anthony Hopkins do this as Lecter. I mean, I don't want to say sexual, but it's like this release that he with every hit of this nightstick on this officer you know and you're you're seeing the you're not seeing the officer get hit you're watching Lecter's response it's a little twisted and sick and it feels weird to watch because it is kind of like a perverse finally I'm able to do this again I'm finally able to get (laughs) get this out you know it's really just impressive how Hopkins is is able to go there for this role. This movie rests on the shoulders of Anthony Hopkins and and Jodie Foster's back and forth in their relationship, but there's so many roles in between characters that we encounter along the way. Great little roles, you know, like they're I just don't feel like there's scenes that are wasted on uh subplots or something that's kind of a throwaway that's like unforgettable like I remember even all the way down to like the the bug guys you know they're like (laughs) very (laughs) unique and like they're you know he's hitting on Jodie Foster's character and they have this moment like they did such a great job of like casting all these little roles um and then some you know minor size roles like Scott Glenn is Jack Crawford Scott Glenn feel like he's just for years been doing the great job of like the authority figure or like wise older guy on the job sure (laughs) he fits perfectly as the head of the FBI behavioral science department is someone that you immediately see is like Jodie Foster's character wants to she wants to prove herself to him she looks up to him he also respects her there's more than just them at the office like when they go uh, to see the body you know they have several great scenes where he tries to say I know I, I know I made you mad because I dismissed you a little bit when all those cops were around, but it's kind of playing the game. But he also is suggesting to her, like, don't don't let me get off the hook on that either, though. You know, call me out when when I need to be called out. I love the little relationship that they have. It helps bring us into the world of what they do, what the FBI does. Because again, it like this wasn't something that we saw in every movie. I mean, this was, you know, we see it all the time now, but this was pretty new territory so there's a lot of procedure and stuff like that that they put into scenes so that we can get that but we also get the interplay of the characters and I love Scott Glenn in this I think this is one of his best roles I think what he does best in in this role as Jack Crawford is bring this cold almost sterility to the FBI and 
bring this uh, grounding, you know, almost uh, as someone that Clarice can look up to. But there's also the sensitivity behind him as much as someone in his position can be sensitive. And he subs in obviously as like a type of father figure for Clarice, but not in a, I don't think in an overly obvious sort of way, but she certainly does want to prove herself to him. And one thing about their relationship is that he he doesn't ever dominate or anything. He puts a lot of trust in her character, though he is using her to bait Hannibal Lecter in the beginning. You know, he does do that. But as the film goes on, we see that he sees the specialness about her character and not that she needs to prove herself in any way. It's just that's how Clarice is. And she is a very special agent. And that's why he initially chose her for this is because he saw that in her. And of course, not to be outdone. I mean, we have to mention, I mean, the villain in the movie. The real villain, even though we've got... Hannibal Lecter and a, and a guy who's going around skinning women. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess we should say the real villain in this, aside from Buffalo Bill, is Dr. Chilton, played by Anthony Held. It's kind of wild that he's the person I despise the most in this movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though we shouldn't have a whole lot of sympathy for Hannibal Lecter. The, his captor is very evil and torturous in his own right. and He sucks. Yeah. yeah, and also, too, I mean, he's real skeevy with... Jodie Foster right from the get-go. He sort of embodies that manager that I'm sure we've all hated at some point in our (laughs) life. You know, he just really gets to the core of, like, working with a scumbag. This is a movie about a woman in a man's world. We see how multiple men view Clarice. He is one that is, like, kind of the pinnacle of ultimate shitty dude. When she's getting further with Lecter, He resents it and he's mad about it and wants to um, capitalize on the progress that she's made with him. I mean, Anthony Held does a wonderful job playing Dr. Chilton. Poor guy. I I know he probably got typecast after this, too, because he did such a great job. But I mean, that's a a testament to what you brought to this movie, which is is pretty special. And honestly, I, I don't feel like the ending would work if you... If we as an audience didn't despise him as much because the ending is only satisfying if you're happy about the fact that <laughs> that Hannibal Lecter is going to eat this guy at the end, you know, um, otherwise it would just, you know, yeah. if he was if he was sort of a forgettable character, like wasn't as strong, like the ending you know, would be kind of, I think, ho-hum. Quick aside, though, about that, Jodie Foster wasn't so keen on it ending like that either. She thought it was like, oh, it's a little like, mm, I don't know. But then kind of came around to feeling that it was, you know, kind of an homage to traditional horror movie endings. And, I mean, you're left at the end of a movie like Silence of the Lambs with a smirk on your face and, like, happy that Hannibal Lecter is going to take care of the real villain. And that is a complete contrast to the villain that we have been following around for half of the movie, which is Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine. Now, that's somebody who got typecast. Man, yeah, he doesn't even really talk about this role anymore because I think it had such an impact. And then shortly after, there was the comparison in in looks between he and Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, it's very unfortunate. Yeah. Just very unfortunate, but... The voice um, he chose to do this oh. is, gosh, I mean, it's got this like strange low register and has like a slight timber to it. And it yeah. just. Uh, oh, yeah. 
He's a great big fat person, right? I mean, how many? I don't know how many times I have done that voice or that accent or just something <laughs> in his voice to make someone feel uncomfortable. He does an amazing job, and so many times I ache, ache watching his character. That role given to the wrong hands to the wrong actor could really kind of like rock the movie pretty badly. He he kind of humanizes this character, even though he seems totally psychopathic and he's doing these horrible things. Ted Levine certainly got into the pathology of this character and really took the book to heart. And when you are playing the character with having all of this backstory that you know from the original source material, I can only imagine how that's going to enrich your performance. And Levine really had a stronghold on this guy. I mean, he's obviously damaged and driven by torment and hates himself. He's trying on multiple identities, probably had an issue with his mother. I mean, like, there's there's a lot of things that we can assume just by watching the movie if you haven't read the book uh, about this character. And the character of Buffalo Bill was a composite of multiple serial killers, Ed Gein, Jerry Brutos, uh, Gary Heidnick, and Ted Bundy. And all of these guys, there were various attributes of what they did um, to people and captured, tormented, made lampshades. Ugh, I mean, real sick stuff. And if you're going to make a character and create someone out of just kind of a composite, what Buffalo Bill ends up being is, we'll, we'll talk more about his character in a little bit, but what he ends up being is someone that is kind of like the ultimate serial killer. And it might seem out there and like this person doesn't exist. But as we found in, in a lot of research on this movie, uh, John Douglas, who was a we talked about earlier, main guy at the FBI that helped out Silence of the Lambs, a character like Buffalo Bill is not something that is that far fetched, if far fetched at all. And if we're going to talk about Buffalo Bill, we got to talk about Catherine Martin, the woman in the well, the woman that gets away, Brooke Smith. What a heavy performance, man. I mean, we see her for a few minutes before she is down in the well and we know what's going to happen to her. The scene where she starts screaming because she sees that other people have tried to claw their way out Ugh, and there's blood awful. in that scream that she lets out and then her reaction to that is, yeah. is really that that's the only moment in the movie where I like I don't fast forward it. But since we were doing we had to watch this multiple times. I think it was like the third time I watched it. I really just wanted to get past that part because it's very traumatic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. I know that she had a strong urge within her to give this role her all because I mean, what, what happens to her is pretty awful and pretty terrible. And we are already thinking about what's going to happen to her. Brooke Smith felt like she had the responsibility on her shoulders to accurately portray what she would, you know, imagine someone in this situation would be like to represent a victim in, in this instance. And man, the strength and terror and resilience, everything. Even even when Jodie Foster, you know, comes to rescue her, and she's like, "Don't you leave me here!" Like I admittedly laugh at that part, but I, I laugh because I'm extremely uncomfortable. And her response to Jodie Foster saying, "I'll be right back," is completely what I would do. You know, like Brooke Smith nails this role, and I think that she's kind of an unsung person in this movie, but I'm glad that this was such a springboard in her career. 
and not to be outdone, there are so many other bit players in this and supporting cast. Casey Lemons, got to give a shout out to actor-director Casey Lemons. We've talked about her before in Candyman. What a wonderful actor. And her as Clarice's like best friend in the Academy. Uh, they share quite a few scenes together, and they're very pivotal moments of figuring out you know, figuring out what's going on with Lecter, trying to solve the case. Casey Lemons brings a lot to this movie. And Frankie Faison is the lovable, orderly Barney, who uh, plays a bigger role in the later Hannibal series. But him and Lecter have this sort of like mutual respect of each other, and, and they both seem to despise Dr. Chilton. I love that they have that, that uh, relationship and mutual hatred. Yeah. Also, Diane Baker only has two scenes. She plays the mother of Catherine Martin. Her scenes are so strong and compassionate, especially when she is talking to Lecter at the little airport scene. I heard that there were only two shots that were done of her performance. You really feel the ache that a yeah. mother would feel in that situation. And yeah, Diane Baker really brings it. And probably the character I identify with the most uh, in this movie, uh, Stuart Rudin is a uh, Miggs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think at the end of the day, there needs to be a sequel that's just called Miggs, and we need to know what Miggs' story was. And uh, finally with cast, uh, Jonathan Demme, of course, being a big Hollywood director, you know, he's got a lot of big Hollywood director friends, and he uh, had a lot of fun casting a few of them in the movie, namely Roger Corman is the head of the FBI, and then also a small bit part with uh, George Romero. Roger Corman's role is really obvious. I mean, he has lines, but I think I always forget kind of like Chris Isaac's pop up in this movie when George Romero is in is in that one, just like a one tiny scene in the background. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Is that that is George Romero, right? It's pretty funny. And George Romero, you know, master of various types of stages of dead bodies. This movie is no stranger to showing uh, showing us a fair amount of different stages of dead bodies. And a great fact is that all of those bodies in this movie, they're all actors. None of those are faked dummies, which is really a testament to the, the special effects crew and everyone involved and the actors for being put through uh, what, they, what they were for these roles. Mainly the uh, woman on the table who they find that's been... Ugh, you know, yeah. in the water, and they find the the moth in her throat. Did the makeup on her so it looked like she had been, you know, decomposing for several days. And uh, I think it was Jodie Foster said that the woman that was on the table was awesome, like because it was very cold, and they had to do that scene. They spent like a half a day on that scene, and that that'd be tough. I would imagine playing that role. You would, after a while, you'd probably just disassociate. I mean, I would hope because it's that is a really vulnerable position to be put in and i mean you're just covered in grime and gross and you've got that pasta and ky jelly making it look like you've got rips in your skin on your back it's disgusting so many uh makeup effects on all the various uh, photos that are seen and some sometimes they're only on screen for a matter of seconds like with the fbi case file and different pictures of the various bodies that are hanging up on the wall but very very authentic and kind of freaky looking and again helps bring the audience into like oh we're behind the scenes now like we're only seeing what the kind of hardcore pictures that the fbi are, are allowed to see and i don't know i think it's great that all the 
the special effects makeup were done on real actual bodies, uh, you know, like you said, not dummies. And to go along with the makeup effects and the actors that endured hopefully fun torment, the uh, cocoon that's taken out of the actor's mouth in that infamous that infamous scene, just so you know, just to take a little bit of the piss out of it for you, um, that is gummy bears and Tootsie Rolls kind of m- made together to form this amazing looking cocoon. It's, it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> I know. I, he he said that he needed to feel better about if she did swallow it, you know, that it would be fine. And the man that created a lot of these effects and little attributes like this, especially to do with the moths, was Ray Mendez. Uh, he had worked on Creepshow before and was no stranger, of course, to special effects. If you've seen Creepshow, you know. But to do with the moths, I was particularly impressed to find out everything that was done with the moths. Like these were actual real moths, but the death's head moth wasn't able to be flown in. It wasn't the right time of year. So they did actually have these prosthetic applied to moths. No moths were hurt in the making of Silence of the Lambs. Let's just get that straight. There were these tiny skull-shaped paintings that were put on fake fingernails and attached to them with a non-aggressive adhesive. But all of this was actually put on these moths and to control, you know, how they would fly around in, in scenes with Buffalo Bill, they were harnessed in. I'm imagining how, what intricate work this must have been. And just to think of the attention to detail and making sure that these creatures are taken care of. I mean, you can't have them die on you. You need them. They're, they're also actors. What Ray Mendez did with this is nothing short of spectacular. Yeah, again, really adding another layer to building this universe, making it seem much more real and authentic. And so much work went into those moths and they're in such a tiny scene, but it is pivotal, you know, where Jodie Foster finds Buffalo Bill and that's the indicator that, oh, this is the moth guy. This is the real killer. Yeah, the death said moth is is something that is on the poster of the movie. You know, that is something that you see that and you know exactly what it's from. Again, so many you know, different uh, aspects went in to make this movie really a perfect film. It's a shame because there's so many movies like this where they get nominated for a lot of awards, but then they don't win. It's always the movie that takes some of the main prizes never seems to be the one that has a lasting impression on audiences for years to come. But Sansa Lambs actually did sweep the Oscars. It did win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. Swept all the major awards and also went down in history is, you know, if you do consider this a horror movie, I know some people don't, as close as you can get to a horror movie um, being recognized by the Academy, um, really horror movies were kind of frowned upon. They were really considered B movies or, you know, money makers for Hollywood, but didn't have the prestige and, and recognition that big budget dramas would get. And so it was very surprising and, and historically very great moment for horror movies to finally get the recognition that they deserve because they uh, horror movies, much like dramas, they, you know, if they're if they're good, they they can play on your emotions, get into your psyche and make your heart race. A lot of times, yeah, they're just kind of written off as is these uh, low-rent movies that are that are made for cheap and aren't supposed to do anything for an audience. <laughs> and 
Um, I highly disagree. I love horror movies, and and I love that this movie garnered so much acclaim at the Oscars. It certainly brought a lot of class to the horror genre. And as we talked about um, in season two with our 80s versus 90s slashers, the beginning of the 90s, horror movies weren't exactly a go-to. In some ways, this movie did kind of kick some juice back into the horror genre and made people watch kind of a thriller hybrid horror movie who maybe wouldn't have watched something like that before. It's really impressive for what it did, and I don't think that the cast and crew thought that something like this was going to happen. This movie came out February 14th, I think. Yeah, it was Valentine's Day in 91, and it was a whole year before the Oscars for that season would come back around. No one thought that they were going to win any of these awards, but it had made its way into pop culture in some ways in like a weird way, becoming parodied and a lot of different things. But that meant that it made a huge impact. And of course, that's going to make the cast and crew who worked on this feel a little strange. You know, this in- incredibly intense, serious movie to see it parodied. For them, it's going to feel weird, but for the rest of society, it's a mark of how that has worked its way into pop culture, and that is impressive and certainly shows how it made such a mark in order to last an entire year for the next Oscar season. And along with uh, all the awards it was nominated for, that included uh, Best Editing and uh, Best Score. The editing in this is particularly fascinating because it has... To me, at least one of the best cross-cutting scenes that's in a movie. And also, uh, this is done all the time now in movies, but this was one of the first movies, at least I remember, where they make the audience think one thing, that the FBI agents are, they're all surrounding the house of Buffalo Bill, and they make you think that they're, you know, busting down the door, and it's like, oh, they caught him. And then you see Clarice by herself at the real Buffalo Bill's house, and this cross-cutting, and then you find out, oh, she's all by herself all her backup is at a whole entirely (laughs) different house because she's been doing some like investigation on her own. Once they actually hit with that beat of, Oh, we're somewhere, we're at a different location. Now it, the terror kind of sinks in. And I remember an interview, the editor saying like, that wasn't the first choice that they had that didn't initially come to him as like, Oh, I'll do cross cutting in between. It was played more straightforward where we see the FBI come in, go into the house. Then we cut to Clarice and really takes away the mystery and the surprise of it. So it's uh just goes to show how different editing can change uh, how we view a movie. And also, uh, just really quickly, the score by Howard Shore. We talked about Howard Shore in our very, very first podcast of Ed Wood. You know, he's not a composer, I think, where you're like, oh, yes, this is definitely Howard Shore, because his his scores can be, like, eclectic and, and different at times and, and then more straightforward at other times. But I love that he chose to not do just an on-the-nose horror movie score with, like, tons of strings and, like, kind of, like, pushing the emotion with the music and uh, the music actually makes the movie again. It classes it up a little bit. It kind of does Mm -hmm. the opposite that what of a lot of straightforward horror movies do. Yeah. The score to me has this operatic vibe and it is straight up from Clarice Starling's inner emotions, her feelings. It is everything that Clarice is going through, but there is this sense of sadness and loss, this abandonment almost. But if the score is supposed to embody the feelings of the main character, character Clarice Starling. We see her bravery and we know that it's going to 
most likely end up in a good way, at least for her. The score itself is beautiful overall, but also the sound editing in general, just these little ambient noises. And man, one thing that sticks out to me, we keep going back to the the, the scene with the actor, the dead girl the, that they're observing and pull the cocoon out of her throat. When they pull that cocoon out and that breath comes out, oh, I love that part. And it's such a moment that I don't think a lot of people would choose to put in there. But this idea of that's her last breath, like how beautiful is that? There's just so much attention to detail with every facet of this film. And this movie not only uh, swept the Oscars, but prior to doing so was a huge, huge financial hit for the studio, uh, modestly budgeted for around $20 million and grossed almost $300 million at the box office. Pretty huge feat. I mean, horror movies generally do pretty well, but all around, that's that's a blockbuster smash hit by Hollywood standards, especially in 1991. And though the movie uh, received numerous awards and, and a huge financial gain, but it was not without a controversy surrounding the film and uh, portrayal of Buffalo Bill by Ted Levine. Yeah, a lot of people from the LGBT community felt that this was yet again another portrayal of a character portrayed as gay or transgender being the villain, the murderer, the someone that's just messed up. And that is something that Hollywood has been guilty of for years and years and years. I, I understand why that was taken from this movie, especially in 1991. It was not exactly the best time for uh, gay portrayals in a film. Here's what I'm going to say, though, about it. Personally, I've never, in all of my viewings of this film, and especially after hearing Ted Levine talk about how he played Buffalo Bill, man, the thing the thing about Buffalo Bill is he wasn't a cross-dresser, and he wasn't transgender, and he wasn't gay. He was someone that was trying on a lot of different identities that didn't fit. He hated himself. And hearing that Ted Levine played him as a homophobic heterosexual, that fits to me completely. Like when we see Buffalo Bill's underground lair and we see his crazy like Nazi quilt that he has on his bed, this guy is is messed up in a lot of different ways. But to me, I think it was a little superficial of a read to look at this film and say that is a negative portrayal of a trans character. If anything, I think it is more of a portrayal of mental illness than it is of someone that's trans in any way. That's just my assessment, but we, we see this numerous times when Buffalo Bill is putting on a performance, and I think that can best be seen in the infamous put the lotion in the basket scene. We see how he's cradling his dog, Precious, played by Darla. I'll talk about her a little bit later. But we see how he is cradling her and how he's talking to her and how he's talking to Catherine Martin in the well. And he is performing. He's performing as he feels like he should or how he's trying to be someone else. But then hearing Catherine Martin plead with him to let her out of the well, we see who he truly is when he's like, what the fuck emotion in the basket? You know? That's who he really is. He's trying on all of these different identities. And I, that's where I think it's just, it's a little too surfacey. It's a little too superficial of a read to say that this is a gay character or trans. And on top of that, as the first clip in this episode, um, I mean, it's blatantly said that he's not a cross-dresser and he's not trans. So I, 
I, I think that it's um I get it and it's completely valid argument for Hollywood. I just don't think that it necessarily fits in this case. And Jonathan Demi, you know, did do a good job of listening to this criticism and instead of getting defensive, uh, did a noble thing of bringing a spotlight to it, saying there there has been a history of of portrayal in Hollywood cinema that has been negative. And so, you know, let's take this moment as like a learning moment. Let's not just like sweep it under the rug and and say, no, you're wrong, which, you know, a lot of times happens whenever a movie gets called out about something. Everybody goes on the defense instead of, you know, just stopping and saying, OK, well, let's let's hear out what what is the criticism and let's look at it and, and consider it a valid point instead of just throwing the book at it. And that is a testament to how Jonathan Demi saw this film. He is completely aware of the stereotypes that Hollywood had been encouraging almost throughout all of the years, but that's not what he was trying to do with this film. Now, the controversy didn't hurt Silence of the Lambs, and I, and I think in some ways it has dissipated over the years, especially when you have other films that are much more on the nose and they're negative portrayal of LGBT folks. Silence of the Lambs certainly spawned quite a few sequels and even a television series. Uh, But it took, what, I think 10 years for Hannibal, which was the sequel, to come out after this one. Yeah, surprisingly long time to come out, though there wasn't a you know, there wasn't a book written yet. So, you know, after Thomas Harris wrote the Hannibal book and it was immediately hit, of course, Hollywood was like, you know, we're going to make a movie right away. We won't take too long here to get into these sequels, but Hannibal does not have Jodie Foster returning as Clary Starling. She's portrayed by Julianne Moore. I think it's as good of a segue of a different actor playing a character that you know and love. As good as you can do that. You know, I mean, you kind of have to surrender your love of Jodie Foster's portrayal of the character. Totally. And, uh, you know, this movie, you know, namely so is more about him. And it's definitely played with much more graphic violence. It's just a bigger, more elevated, kind of like the sort of trashy way of we're going for maximum amount of like uh, shock value. Yeah. And a year after that was Red Dragon, which was actually a remake. We briefly mentioned Manhunter. Um, in the beginning of the episode. And Manhunter, to me, I really love that film. And I think that Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs are a great pairing together. Nothing wrong with the performances in Red Dragon. Justin, I think you might have have some feelings on Edward Norton's portrayal in, in this film. I think it was, again, trying to capitalize on the success of Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal. If you're going to tell the Thomas Harris story of Red Dragon, I would go back to Manhunter, the Michael Mann film from 86. Yeah, I feel the same way. I like Manhunter much more as an adaptation of Red Dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the the remake of the same name is just kind of like a retreading, only it's a more of like kind of basic version of it. Yeah, Ed- Edward Norton's portrayal in it is much more kind of dopier and... They kind of they have his hair sort of like this bleach blonde, like very distracting. I kind of like his hair, but it is distracting. It's I like it's, it. it's like all I think about when I'm watching. It's very it's just like an odd choice. And I think but, that I covet his hair though, a little little Buffalo Bill coveting. I get the idea of like, okay, we're gonna we want this to fit nicely within the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter that we know and kind of beef up his role a little bit and. I get that. And, you know, it's a serviceable movie. Um, Seems like 
just sort of like redundant a little bit, but it's totally watchable and entertaining. I, I wouldn't say it's my least favorite of the series. That would be Hannibal Rising, which uh, is the only movie that Thomas Harris uh, was directly involved in. He adapted the screenplay from his novel, and that one is about the early, early days of Hannibal Lecter growing up from a child. you think that it was be this fascinating movie and tale, but it, to me it's actually kind of like a very miserable experience. It's a very stark and dismal tale and not played with any kind of fun that we've grown to love with the Hannibal character. This was sort of like Hannibal the very lean years. Hannibal the lean years. I can see that. As a completist, watching all of these together is pretty fun. Just to know the the whole the whole story, however they're told, obviously a lot of work went into all of these films, but um you know, I, I think with anything, with any franchise, they always kind of lose a little bit of that magic that they had in the beginning. But I mean, it, it is pretty fun to I did actually go back and watch like all of these what would be in succession, you know, and, and it was enjoyable. You know, there's some that are better uh, than others. Obviously, Silence of the Lambs is always going to be the standout. Yeah. And Manhunter to me actually comes in behind that. But man, that movie stands out completely stylistically different than than all of them and Hannibal Rising admirable effort if there was going to be a villainous character that there is an origin story behind sure Hannibal Lecter there there's a lot to work with there think of it what you will but it is kind of fun to run through all of them together as a series in the uh, Hannibal television series uh, I'll just say this about it if you're a fan of Dexter You'll probably like the Hannibal television series. Um, It's pretty much a retread of Red Dragon, except for like maybe like a pre, a prequel to Red Dragon where we still have the Will Graham character and him and Hannibal. It's like their early interplay of working together very much like the way uh, him and Clarice did. And they have this mutual respect relationship before things go sour and a whole lot of how many serial killers live in this town kind of thing. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it has, I think it has like a lot of the humor and tongue in cheekness that Dexter did, uh, you know, where there's some pretty serious violence and consequence in the show, but there's also, it's played up with a little bit of kind of like delicious fun. That's a good way to say it. It is pretty fun to watch if you like these characters. And I mean, for me, if you're going to have Jillian Anderson as a recurring character as Lecter's therapist. Yeah, I'm all in on that. I'm going to watch it, of course. The Silence of the Lambs, this universe is still ongoing with the new show Clarice, which was developed by Alex Kurtzman and uh, Jenny LeMay, Sydney LeMay's daughter. Looks to be uh, pretty promising. I've only seen a teaser for it, but it definitely seems to deal with Clarice uh, taking place one year after the events of Silence of the Lambs, though it does not have the character of Hannibal in it it's her on a completely different assignment um and uh obviously a different actor playing uh the Jodie Foster part because she's still supposed to be like I think like 24 in, uh, in the show I'm pretty excited for this I'm I'm definitely going to be watching yeah I'm gonna check it out well let's stop there we'll come back for a little bit more of Sounds of Lambs talk But let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, uh, you went the Anthony Hopkins route with magic. What can you tell me about that movie? 
Well, a twinge of realness and empathy can add unexpected depth to any thriller or horror film, and it can happen in in a multitude of ways. I went with magic this time because paired with Silence of the Lambs, you can see the vastly different ways Sir Anthony Hopkins portrays a very disturbed person. And I'll tell you right now, his performance here is just as incredible as it is in Silence of the Lambs. I know that's a bold statement, but... I don't know. This is an underseen movie. Hopkins plays Corky, a minorly successful ventriloquist on the verge of making it in the big time. Faced with both fears of failure and succeeding, Corky secretly escapes town and finds himself in his nearby hometown where he hopes to find his unrequited childhood love, Peggy. And margaret plays the downtrodden flame waiting to be lit again Peggy, who is now running an out-of-commission bed-and-breakfast of sorts and unsatisfied with the way her life's turned out. And although Corky's fear of becoming a full-fledged celebrity is very real, he also knows that he'll never pass the medical exam required to enter this contract that would catapult him to stardom. That is, you see, because... He fears the exposure of him treating his wooden ventriloquism counterpart, Fats, as if he were a real person. Writer William Goldman adapted his own novel of the same name into magic screenplay, and I love when this happens because you know that the heart of the book must be contained in the movie. Goldman also wrote The Princess Bride, Butch Cassidy, and All the President's Men, so you know his attention to the heart of the story is going to be woven all throughout. Sometimes the pacing of 70s films feels different than contemporary ones. More story-driven, you actually have to pay attention to get the most out of the movie. But the way magic flows is so seamless, fully engrossing, so natural, and relatively quick, even though the disturbing aspects of the movie creep up on you. Fully involved story aside, 100% of what makes this movie work are the performances. Hopkins as the extremely talented, intelligent, hopeless romantic ventriloquist and magician really should have earned him some kind of award nomination. This role must have been brought up at least once when he was being thought of for Silence of the Lambs. I can't imagine that it wasn't. And Anne Margaret might be one of the most underrated dramatic actors, and probably since this wasn't the root of her initial fame, but she's astounding in this movie. And rounding out the main cast is the renowned actor Burgess Meredith, who's always phenomenal in every role, and seeing him as Corky's agent with an understated, quiet coolness, you can't help but want him to really get through to Corky once he figures out his client is extremely troubled. It's funny looking back at this 1978 film that Hopkins, although top build, was easily the least known, just because everyone is so equally wonderful. And if it wasn't for this incredible cast, this movie really might falter, even with an awesomely tight script. Also, for a love story to be such a strong point in the psychological thriller is kind of uncommon. Hopkins and Anne Margaret gel together very believably, and there's something so innocent about their story, and ultimately adds even more intensity to the film's heartbreaking conclusion. When I'm teary-eyed at the end of a horror movie or a thriller, bam, your work is done as far as I'm concerned. Good job. Magic never reveals what in the hell is truly going on with Corky. You can watch the movie in two ways. One, obviously Corky's mind is splintered and part of his personality has assumed the persona of his dummy Fats. Or two, Fats very well might be possessed. And mental illness in movies can often be insulting. And I'm not an expert on dissociative personality disorder or schizophrenia, but magic doesn't villainize mental illness here, even though the protagonist, you know, might murder a couple people. 
if anything, it shows a very human ache, which comes along with the struggle of living with a fragmented mind. There's also some minor commentary on what fame can mean. Corky's afraid of being exposed, feared his unusual closeness and inability to be without Fats could appear strangely. Until Fats came along, Corky was a failing magician and only achieved fame after a very public lashing of an unfriendly audience and having a public breakdown of sorts. A little while later, he finds his home in ventriloquism. So, in a way, Fats is Corky's vulgar, quick-witted counterpart to Corky's straight man, but it's almost as if Fats is Corky's dark shadow, another part of his personality that can only be expressed through his wooden counterpart and is celebrated by audiences all over. So in some ways, the negatives of mental illness become reinforced as something to embrace. And this right here is one of the reasons that we just can't villainize Corky. We can see his pain. Director Richard Attenborough's decision to let the audience decide if we think Corky is mentally ill or Fats is really somehow alive is uniquely bold. There are more than a few moments of visual trickery where it seems plausible that Fats moves by himself. Although uses, as any great magician would, a lot of visual misdirection in man does it add a lot of tension to the story and really leaves you questioning, did I just see that? Adding to the spectacular cast, extremely competent and talented direction, original and imaginative story is the uneasily eerie score by Jerry Goldsmith. It's jarring at times, impassioned, and sometimes full of dread. As scores are intended... It adds a bigger spectrum of emotion to draw us in, and this Goldsmith score just stands out atop as one of his best in the man's endless body of work. I can't say enough great things about magic. As a kid, it unnerved me. I thought Fats was indeed alive. As an adult, it's much more of a heartbreaking story with legit creepy moments. It also appeals to the senses for anyone who's ever had some unrequited love, because so often those stories never end the way you want them to. Magic's a rad film, even 40 years later, so please give it a whirl. It's currently streaming on HBO Max. I gotta rewatch this. Movies with uh, dolls always freaked me out so much when I was little, and just seeing the uh, advertisement and box to this was always scared me <laughs> off when I was younger. And man, too, I always forget Richard Attenborough is has directed so many movies. I always just yeah. think of him as the owner of Jurassic Park. I know, I know. I think that's what a lot of people think of, or as the narrator for a, a, a amazing, um, like National Geographic documentaries type of things. Yeah, Richard Attenborough's directed some incredible films. All right, it's your turn, Justin. Tell me about your pick of the week. My pick of the week was The Edge, which came out in 1997. This is a movie I hadn't seen since it probably came out in the theaters. It started coming back to me as I was rewatching the movie. And man, this is a really intense film. I think subdued performance by Anthony Hopkins for the most part. He plays Charles Morse, a billionaire. And just re-watching this movie, the first thing that's strange is when this movie came out, we just didn't hear about billionaires all the time. I mean, a billionaire <laughs> is in the news like every other day or, you know, when they're talking about, you know, people that run countries and stuff. So watching a movie about a billionaire flying to Alaska to have his uh, much younger wife be photographed. His wife is played by supermodel Elle McPherson and the photographer played by Alec Baldwin and his assistant Harold Perrineau are all there and the shoot's not really going that well, and so they decide they want to find this 
old Native American guy to be in the photograph. So Anthony Hopkins, Alec Baldwin, and Harold Perrineau board a small plane with a pilot. They crash into the Alaskan wilderness in a very remote area, and the three the pilot dies, but the three of them have to survive. The setup is very nice. It's like real quick. There's a suggestion that uh, Alec Baldwin's character is kind of skeevy, possibly having an affair with Anthony Hopkins' wife. Uh, Anthony Hopkins suspects this, but once the plane crashes and they're kind of on their own to fend for themselves, all that's kind of put to the wayside. It's really this section of the movie that is the most thrilling because they're stalked by a bear. And it's very odd for me to talk more about an animal of a, of a movie than the actual actors. But the uh, bear in this movie was a big Kodiak bear played by Bart the Bear, who's been in like dozens of Hollywood and television productions, including a movie you talked about, Lindsay, The Great Outdoors. This bear had actually worked with Anthony Hopkins prior to this film in Legends of the Fall. And the scenes with Bart the Bear, absolutely terrifying. The scene where uh, he attacks uh, Harold Perrineau is probably the most squeamish I've gotten in a movie in a long, long time. So if you have not seen this movie or you haven't seen it in a while, prepare yourself for that. I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it because this is like a survivalist film. You know, for the most part, again, what makes a good survivalist film is you are watching it and you're kind of like wondering, well, what would I do in this situation or how would I survive or would I make the same decisions that the uh, people trying to get through this ordeal would. And that's what makes the movie a lot of fun. I do feel the movie uh, has like a weaker third act, tries to take some twists and turns that uh, otherwise I don't think were like super necessary. Um, it already had built a really good, intense story. It just seemed like it kind of like um, backpedaled toward the end. But it, it doesn't it doesn't ruin the movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's very tightly directed with a very assured script with a lot of bravado dialogue by David Mamet. So if you haven't seen The Edge in a while, I highly recommend it. Much props to Bart the Bear. Uh, he was such a big part of this movie that uh, when the movie ends, he's actually the first credit that pops up on the screen, which I thought was kind of uh, awesome that they did that. Um, also a tribute to him because uh, he... Uh, uh, Bart the Bear did pass away of cancer uh, one year after the filming of The Edge. I had no idea that was the bear from the great outdoors. I mean, that would make sense. Probably not, you know, the most common thing for there to be a lot of bear actors out there. He's in the movie The Bear. Uh, Disney put out, I want to say like 1989, one of those movies that's just about animals but they're not talking um thank you so much for that i want to revisit this one it's been since it was released on vhs since i've seen this movie but i do really love a good survivalist film and this one was fun so those are our picks of the week the edge and magic both with anthony hopkins both uh pretty intense films that uh, are definitely worth your time and a look but let's murray on <laughs> oh Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so special. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking.
I felt like going a little bit lighter, you know, because we've been through some darkness in this episode, and why not focus on some of the positives that Hannibal Lecter brings us? But what am I talking about here? Well, of course, the culinary arts. And for a guy who makes sure to meet his chef, knows all the great restaurants in many cities, his son Homer is even the revered chef in the family, Billy and his brothers are responsible for the Murray Brothers Caddyshack restaurants, and I, you know, Bill just knows his way around food, okay? But you might not know about the time that Billy was on a limited one-stop publicity tour for a cookbook of his own when he stopped by New York to talk about it with David Letterman. Maybe some of you have heard of his famous book, Cooking with Toast. Okay, I'm being sarcastic here. The man does not have a cookbook on toast, but him pretending that he did is never not funny. On top of being a top-notch culinary connoisseur, Bill's, you know, more of the self-proclaimed purveyor of all the things to do with food. He supplies the means, buys the groceries, does the grunt work, but someone else has to prepare it all. But on Letterman, we see his true, masterful instincts with cooking with toast. If for nothing else, his tall white chef's hat sure lets us know that Billy means business. Where'd you get this idea, Bill? Letterman asks him. Well, I love toast. Who doesn't, am I right? And he lets us know that toast is not just toast. It's not so simple. You see, toast is for all times of the year. He's got his demonstration table all lined out, multiple toasters with bread all ready to go, mustard, ketchup, some liquor bottles, and a giant pile of raw hamburger meat. Bill and Dave start grabbing softball-sized handfuls of meat and making comically large burgers. And these giant patties are just haphazardly thrown into a skillet. Then the toast is started. All kinds. You got your white, your wheat, your rye, and as Bill says, there's always some jerk who wants sourdough. Okay, the toasting is commenced. Then it's time to test the condiments. Bill straight up drinks mustard right from the container and hands it to Dave, who decides to not follow suit. Ketchup's next. Bill squirting it directly into his mouth and then makes sure that Dave does a sampling of his own by forcibly assisting him. Following the condiment testing, both gentlemen slam back some cognac straight out of the bottle, followed by Billy attempting to flambe some burgers. This isn't the first time that Bill's done some condiment shots, followed by liquor, but that's another Murray moment. Trying to flambe some burgers doesn't go exactly as planned, but Bill makes sure that there's a giant flame one way or another. You know, he's a guy who's quick on his feet. You know this. As the segment's running out of time, you might wonder, what happened to the toast? But don't worry, like any true cooking show, Bill was prepared. He pulls out a giant tray of pre-toasted toast to fling out at the audience. And when it's all said and done, this is what your toast is going to look like. Perfect. Absolutely perfectly toasted toast. Honestly, I've never seen better looking toast, and I've been around the breadbasket a time or three. There's so many Bill and Letterman bits over the years. Who knows if I'll ever get to them all, but I like to sprinkle them in whenever I can to lighten the mood, especially if one ends with Bill nailing the camera lens with a giant ball of meat. And he may not be as skilled as Hannibal the Cannibal, but at least he knows his way around toast, condiments, and liquor. And if someone can track down the Cooking with Toast by Bill Murray book jacket, that would be really cool because I think I need to own that. Cooking with Toast is totally the name of a cookbook that Bill Murray would put out. <laughs> yep. Like, there's something that I believe it. I believe that there could be an entire cookbook on that and that, yeah, he'd, he'd be the guy that would put it out. I will say, though, it does take some uh, finessing to get toast just right, properly cooked. And I'm not joking. I mean, at the end, when we have that giant tray of 
that toast is is perfect. I mean, it's perfect. You can some people like their toast charred. Some like it barely toasted. You know, I'm more on the toasty toast kind of. I like some black. I like some extra charred. You know, this was perfect. This could fit anyone's uh, uh, criteria for what is the best toast. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. Of course, as always. Well, do we have any uh, final thoughts on Silence of the Lambs before we close out this episode? I mean, I definitely do. I needed to bring her up. I've, I've, I've mentioned her a couple times, but I needed to bring up something about Darla the dog in Silence of the Lambs. I was kind of figuring that your uh, final <laughs> thought would be Darla in nature. I mean, this was probably Darla's biggest role, and we've talked about her in Coming to America and The Burbs. She's been in Batman Returns, Chud 2, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You know, Darla's been around the block, but I think Silence of the Lambs is easily her biggest role. I did want to bring up a couple things real quickly. This, I believe, is the only movie where she's actually represented as her true breed, which is a Bashan. Um, in every other movie, she's usually represented as a poodle. And I think that she's even referenced a lot as Buffalo Bill's poodle in this movie. She definitely has a Bichon cut. I uh, just want to put that out there for any of the uh, dog folks listening. I have a part Bichon B. You got to call this out when you see it. So Darla plays Precious. And Precious has what's known as a lamb cut in the movie. And um, this is important, you might think, uh, since it's called Silence of the Lambs. And that at the end of the movie, Catherine Martin is grasping Precious, right? Just like, I mean, she's, Precious in some ways is what saves Catherine Martin by, you know, she's got her down in the well and that's her bargaining chip with Buffalo Bill. And in some ways, to me, looking on this movie, that Precious serves as kind of like this metaphor for a lamb. So in essence, Clarice saves herself, which is Catherine Martin in this case, by saving she and uh, Precious. And I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm thinking too deep here, but I don't. it, it makes sense, right? It, it makes kind of sense. She's got a lamb cut. She looks like a tiny lamb. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Now that's my final thought. You know, I got to bring Darla up. I think that she's a uh, just a an amazing actor, and I, I love that she had such a strong reign in the '80s and '90s. Yeah, so many uh, good movies, so many good performances by Darla. Oh, Darla, Bart the Bear, man, Justin, what's your final thought? Uh, I just had a quick thought on one of the behind-the-scenes documentaries, The Sound Salams. They were kind of talking about the mask that Hannibal Lecter wears. Cause there's a few scenes where, you know, he's got the, he's a biter. So they put a mask on him when they take him out of his cell. So he doesn't bite anybody. And <laughs> he's a biter. He's a biter. <laughs> and, uh, one of the most, uh, iconic looks is the sort of half metal mask with the slots in it. When he goes to meet the Senator in this behind the scenes thing, I saw they went through all these various masks potential mass that they would have him wear. It's interesting because you don't really think about how much goes into, hey, we got to find this right kind of masks. And some of the models that they showed, like one of them looked like he was wearing like a like a beekeeper's mask. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, some of them just looked really ridiculous and just did not look scary or yeah. memorable. Um, and it took them a while to get down to that 
particular one that he wears. And then, because uh, w- one of the other masks he wears is when uh, Dr. Chilton is uh, talking to him and it's like, it almost looks like a catcher's mitt. It's kind of pushing his nose down. Yeah. Um, and that one's definitely not as scary, but one of the other ones that they had for when he, they have him wheeled out on that gurney is uh, kind of looked also like a catcher's mitt. So they, they wanted something more menacing for that scene, which I thought they, they really did a great job of taking the time to find, you know, the perfect mask to have him wear for that scene. That was the prototype that's actually in the movie. And it was supposed to go back for a paint job, but it looked like, leathery and weird like and they they thought that yeah that it just looked creepy enough just the way it was and the other the other thing too is some of the other masks they really they they, anthony hopkins does you know so much with his eyes and the not blinking thing and some of the mask like obscured his eyes so they were like well we can't see his eyes and yeah you can't see him talking because it's covering his mouth and that doesn't really work for an audience so um, a lot of thought went into that, so I just like to, mm-hmm. you know, point that out. Another little fun fact about the ending of the movie that's so, I the the entire last twenty minutes of this movie is one of my favorite, I think, in in all of cinema. But the the night vision scene with Buffalo Bill and Clarice in the basement, they struggled with how to wait. Okay, so. You know, Clarice isn't seeing that Buffalo Bill is right behind her. How are we ever going to get light in the basement? And it seems so natural when you watch it, like what happens in in the plot. But from what I understood, it was like kind of a happy accident of like, how do we block out the light in the basement? But how do we get light to reveal what's going on? And I guess it hadn't been thought about in advance to block out Buffalo Bill's windows like with black paint to make it completely dark in the basement and that it was the gunshot that revealed the light and she could see everything that was down there. Just one of those crazy things that you don't really, you know, it seems so natural in the plot and that they would have thought of this in advance before they were down there. But it's just like such a cool afterthought. Because clearly nobody on that crew had seen Fright Night. (laughs) <laughs> yeah right but no it does make for a really more exciting ending and a a logical solution as to how Jodie Foster can see him to shoot him well I think that's gonna do it for us for Silence of the Lambs thank you so much for listening happy new year again we've got a uh, slew of great movies coming up that we'll be talking about in the future our next episode will be on david cronenberg's the fly david cronenberg one of our favorite directors here at don't push pause it's kind of crazy that we haven't done one of his movies since we've started this whole thing we've been talking about the fly i feel like since season one really and i think in some ways you know it's kind of our Valentine's movie a little bit, um, even though Silence of the Lambs came out. It, it, that's our pre-Valentine's movie is, yeah. is this, what you're listening to. And um, The Fly, um, yet another dark, strange, dismal love story. I cannot wait to talk about the, all the gruesome details behind that movie. Yeah. Uh, as a reminder, starting uh, after this episode, we're going to be releasing an episode uh, every three weeks instead of two weeks just to give us more time 
to research, to give us more time to do more uh, social media content. But uh, do not worry. We've got a lot of stuff coming up for your ears. Please, if you haven't, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, we're on YouTube where we have all of our old episodes that you can listen to as well as any weird videos or promos or anything that we've done in the past or in the future. You'll find them on our YouTube page at Don't Push Pause Podcast. If you want to contact us for any reason, please do at Don't Push Pause Podcast at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived as well on our website at Don't Push Pause Podcast.com. There you can also find our merch store. We have all kinds of things for sale there. Please, please, please buy something from us. Uh, all that money funnels back into the podcast to help us create uh, you know, more content for your ears. Again, Happy New Year. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.